The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Suburbanista podcast with me, Paul McGinn, from the University of Western Australia. For planning and geography scholars, Los Angeles has long been seen as an urban dystopia, with this amorphous urban form, six and eight lane highways scarring the urban landscape, and a haze-filled sky. In this episode of the Suburbanista podcast, Planning La La Land, the focus is on urban planning in Los Angeles. On my trip to Las Vegas back in January to chat with porn performers for my Carpool Triple X podcast series, I stopped off in LA. I paid a visit to the Price School at the University of Southern California and spoke with Professor Marlon Burnett, Chair of Planning and Spatial Analysis. We chatted about some of the major planning issues and challenges facing Los Angeles, how this so-called urban dystopia has changed over the years and what lessons it might offer other global cities. So sit back and let's take a short commute with me into planning La La Land. I'm here today in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California with Professor Marlon Burnett. Oh, it's good to see you. Marlon, I'm here in uh, LA on my way to Vegas. I'm doing a number of things. Um, and I wanted to use this opportunity for my first podcast to explore some issues with you about planning in LA. Before we get there, can we start with you? Can you tell us, you know, a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, Paul. Uh, of course, most academics think that they are more interesting than they are. I'll tell you a little bit. Uh, I'm a professor of urban planning, and I chair the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis here at USC. Uh, I got my PhD in public policy in 1992, and for lack of a better phrase, I was studying urban economics. I entered planning, uh, most of my career was at UC Irvine. I came to USC six years ago, and I have been studying a combination of transportation planning, land use, urban growth patterns, and travel behavior, really my whole career. And much of my recent work links to um, greenhouse gas emission reduction and ways that transportation is tied to climate change policy. And in that respect, being in Los Angeles and in California is really a tremendously exciting place to be. Yeah, I mean, on my on my drive, come and see you here at USC, um, I went through a number of kind of different neighborhoods um, and na- navigate the Los Angeles traffic, both on the freeway and off the freeway through the back roads. My first time, actually, when I came to LA was in 1997. I actually came to a visit to uh, USC. And driving around, it was just mind-boggling, you know, driving on the 405, for example. You've got six aliens going just in one direction. So LA kind of really does typify the, the car dependent city. Could you kind of, you know, in the time that you've been here and the time you've been researching, I mean, how has that evolved in, in kind of recent history? Something fascinating is happening in Los Angeles. The voters have approved at the ballot box four different sales tax measures, which are funding primarily rail transit investments. The largest of those was a measure that was passed just this uh, in fall of 2016 that will allocate a $120 
billion dollars predominantly to rail transit over the course of the next 30 years. And I say that because people think of Los Angeles as being the prototypical automobile city, and, and it was. It was really, in the 1920s, one of the earliest adopters of an auto-oriented, sprawling urban form. But Los Angeles is now 25 years into an aggressive rail transit transformation of the city, the largest rail transit construction program, certainly in the United States, is in this city. So this is a city that is actively working to transition from auto only to a multimodal city. I tell people Los Angeles led the world into the automobile era, and we are going to lead the world out of it. In terms of that, uh, that, that real investment on the way here, again, I, I kind of drove past the new metro line. It kind of runs just on the perimeter of the campus. Yeah. How long has that been in? Because it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't here in 97 when I first came here. Yeah. That's called the, uh, we call it the Expo Line. It runs down Exposition Boulevard. It opened up in spring of 2012. Uh, the last phase opened, I, I think, a couple of years ago. I'm forgetting exactly. Uh, going all the way to Santa Monica. So now rail transit will take you from downtown to uh, the ocean, which is figures prominently in, in Angelino's psyche. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so it's somewhat new. It's light rail. Uh, I did a study around it, we found that people who lived within a half mile of that light rail station uh, reduced their driving by as much as uh, 10 miles per day. On a and it wasn't as much. That was an average. You may have seen recently that York University in Toronto has had a, a new rail line go in, and uh, Roger Kyle has been tweeting you know, prodigiously about kind of the ridership levels and, you know, that the train there is packed. Has the the Expo line had that kind of similar experience with students and, and other people? Is it, is, it, is it popular? The ridership on the Expo line is exceeding expectations. Now, it is light rail, so the ridership is low by what we would call heavy rail world standards. If I'm recalling the numbers correctly, I think the Expo line is probably around 50,000 to 60,000 riders per day. And I may have overstated. So that's not a big number. I mean, Beijing, Sao Paulo carry multiple millions of riders per day. That's one line. LA as a system is at about half a million riders per day, but it's exceeding expectations. In fact, um, some people are beginning to suggest that we may have wished that we may have built a grade-separated heavy rail line along that corridor, right. which no one was suspecting would be an issue when they were building it. So in terms of that kind of modal shift, though, I mean, with the expansion of this rail kind of network that you've got in L.A., I mean, are more and more people getting out of cars um, or is ridership level in cars staying at a, at a steady level? Well, look. The car is the most dominant form of transportation. It is, and it will stay that way. Uh, this is about having options, about having meaningful variations on the theme. In terms of statistics, car commuting is largely stable. If anything, it may have dropped down only a tad, but it's mostly stable over time. We are seeing there's a substantial amount of walking travel in the five-county region that comprises greater Los Angeles. Almost 25% of all trips are walking walking trips in wow. downtown Los Angeles, over half. Now, I, I mentioned that to point out that Los Angeles has places that are very urbanized, but those are very short trips. Most people still take cars, but some people now are beginning to choose to go carless. We are seeing that to some extent with some of our students, for example, here at USC. So the idea of being carless by choice is something that you do see in Los Angeles nowadays, and certainly you would have never seen that 
25 years ago. Actually, on that point, I mean, I've seen a lot more people on the streets. Just, I mean, driving around myself over the last couple of days and in different neighborhoods, a lot more people actually out. I remember being here, I'm just going to come back to 1997 again. And actually, in 1999, on my second trip, and I was out walking on uh, Sunset Boulevard, and I think I and my friend were the only people basically who were on the pavement. So there is a, there does seem to be a kind of a dispelling of the myth of New, of Los Angeles as this kind of, you know, auto monster of the city in some senses. Yeah. Would that be fair? Absolutely. And part of what we're seeing is um, more people are choosing to walk now and then, not as their primary mode of travel bike, maybe use a bike share. What we're starting to see is that I, I think people are valuing having different transportation options, and they are starting to appreciate that transportation is intimately bound up with the quality of life at a place. People understand that, I think, now intuitively. They don't talk about it the way planning scholars talk about it, yeah. but I think they're really beginning to appreciate that the street is an important part of our public space, and that they want to be out there on the street in ways that are not necessarily always in an automobile. Another big change that I've seen here is the downtown area has been renewed, it's densified, it used to be a, re a relatively soulless place at one time, and that seems to have changed. Where has that come from, or what were the drivers, or who were the drivers? Well, this is fascinating for a planning podcast. Um, two of the drivers were planning policies, and I, I think that's important because sometimes planners wonder, does what we do have an impact? Here's some good news. I'm going to illustrate some big impact. Uh, downtown Los Angeles has really become a gathering place. Los Angeles, they used to say there's no there there. It has re-centered. Uh, downtown has become really, in many ways, the center of the city. There's two planning interventions that are responsible for that. One is the rail system, which is radial inbound. Even more importantly, around the turn of the century, around 2000, the city council passed an ordinance called Adaptive Reuse. And the adaptive reuse ordinance made it much easier to redevelop uh, some of what were then the either abandoned or underused office buildings or department stores downtown, maybe 10 or 12 stories, into residential, including eliminating parking requirements. So in, yes. in that oh, one right. location, yeah, it was an early case of eliminating parking requirements, and it was what sparked the initial residential development downtown. So... Um, our planning tools really do matter. One of the downsides of urban renewal and urban regeneration is the gentrification process. Yes. So in terms of what's happening downtown, I mean, how would you describe yeah. the gentrification process in downtown LA? This is very important. You're exactly right. As we generate new growth in these neighborhoods, we worry about gentrification. Um, and I like to talk about displacement. You know, I, I view gentrification as the who is moving in, but displacement is who has to move out. And, and I, I think that's an even more serious issue. I've been working with my USC colleague, Rafael Bostic, who just recently became the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank. So I should add, uh, nothing that I'm about to say is necessarily endorsed by the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but we're looking at the question of displacement near rail stations. This is a challenge for cities uh, worldwide. We, we don't have strong results right now, still a little too early in the research process. We really have to think about how development and housing policy are interacting in ways that may not allow people to stay in their neighborhoods. It's, it's a massive issue in cities all over the globe. Yeah, I mean, um, 
in Perth, I'll just come back to Perth again. I mean, in terms of our uh, southern rail line, the extension from went from the Perth CBD down to Mandra. It's a heavy rail line. It's a number of stations have been built along that line. And something that's kind of always kind of been at the forefront of my mind was this is really great, obviously, for outer suburbanites. It allows them, it brings the city much closer to them in, in time-wise if you get on the train. But I was been thinking, well, that has created suburban subdivision and land price increases. And therefore, you know, so for subsequent generations coming in, I mean, this is the, the planning conundrum that we have. We do well in kind of create, solving or resolving one issue yeah. only to create basically another one. So I'm always minded of good old Ritalin Weber here about the kind of the wickedness of some of our exactly. uh, some of our decisions as yeah. planning policymakers and also planning scholars when we think around what might be a good idea. Now, now I, th these are wicked problems. They're not unique to planning, by the way. Thinking about displacement, housing affordability, and this is an issue in Los Angeles and Sydney and Melbourne, I don't know Perth well, Paris, Hong Kong, Singapore, and it's an issue of mostly about the last two generations. Yeah. When I talk to my students, I point out to them, in Los Angeles in the mid-1960s, median house prices were about exactly equal to median house price in the United States at that time. And the large metropolitan areas have diverged and grown much more expensive. I think in a knowledge-based economy, the value of urban land due to agglomeration and productivity benefits of being in cities has grown much more rapidly. I think there's some real equity issues. I mean, San Francisco, New York, you know, where you can get by if you're in high finance or a yeah. technology worker, but what if you're in everything else? People in the Bay Area complain with a straight face that you can't make it on 150 grand a year, and they, they actually might be right, given some of those housing prices. <laughs> um, so... Um, I, I, we need to really seriously think. This doubles back, I think, to housing policy. Yeah. Um, we and and there's a lot of cross national variation. I, yeah. we, we do not do a good job thinking about housing policy. I mean, it strikes me that there's a, a kind of a an array of policies. So it's not just housing policy per se, but then there might be thing around you know, welfare policy, taxation policy. So all these cogs have to move in the right direction. Yeah. So, you know, it might be a good thing to create urban regeneration because that creates construction jobs, it has land uplift outcomes. But your point about displacement, I mean, are there policies being kind of developed around that to ensure that displacement is either stopped or minimized here in Los Angeles? I mean, is it, is it high on the policy and political agenda? You know, I want to come back to the point you raised, Paul, that it's a lot of policies. That's a really good point, because uh, part of it also, it's also labor market issues. Housing affordability is a question of housing price and what you are earning. Some people double back and point out how important it is to think about uh, wages, which have stagnated um, in, in, if, for a lot of people for decades. Questions of labor market policy. Some cities are experimenting with minimum wage increases. I know in Los Angeles, there's been a lot of experimentation with what we call community benefit agreements and project labor agreements, which are both used in the context of typically large development projects where you have union hiring requirements, local hiring requirements, requirements to put some of the benefits of the project back into the community. So there's a lot of experimentation. I mean, we need to learn a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, these, these, these things touch on a lot of areas. On that topic of learning, I'm just thinking about how the rest of the world, those 
those big cities that you mentioned, what could they learn from the planning experience of what's going on in LA? Because, you know, again, historically, and I think what we've covered so far, I mean, LA may have been seen at various stages as a kind of planning basket case because of its amorphous kind of size. But I, I, I've always been kind of, uh, in some senses, in awe of the fact that it still works despite its scale, despite its sprawling nature and the population growth. It still managed to function. It's not perfect. Nowhere is ever perfect, but it still functions. Yeah. And it, fun- it seems to function pretty well. I, I think it does. I, I think on a lot of angles, it does function well. What could places learn from L.A.? Great cities have to be able to reinvent themselves, to refresh themselves, including through migration. And Los Angeles has been able to do that. The nature of who is in this city and what it means to to be an Angelino has changed substantially. The largest ethnic group is now Hispanic. And um, uh, I, I think we've navigated that change fairly well. Political sh- power has, has also shifted. I was going to say, with, with that demographic shift, has there been a political shift as well? Yes, but it has lagged, so yeah. uh, it has not been. But I think, it, it, um, I think Los Angeles has taken a position of being forward-looking, you know, and, and, and welcoming the demographic change. A second thing that places might learn from Los Angeles might be that on the transportation side, the urban form of Los Angeles was first set by the Pacific Electric Rail System of the early 1900s, and that used land value capture. The rail system was used to create value in far-flung residential developments that were then used to finance the rail system. And that's a, a great lesson for the present yeah. day. One of the kind of the, in, in an Australian context, value capture is one of the kind of the buzzwords yeah. in trying to justify uh, large scale infrastructure projects. It's about, yeah. you know, okay, well, yeah. what can we do to get the, the land value uplift? Uh, and then we can exactly. pay, use that to pay a significant chunk of the infrastructure, the cost for the infrastructure. Because real, I mean, in Perth, I think about income on fares basically covers about 25%, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Sounds about right. You know, systems are like that. And, you know, so that it's, it's heavily subsidized yeah. in that sense. We're not doing land value capture nowadays in Los Angeles, unfortunately, but many of the Asian cities are really the leader in that. The Hong Kong subway system, the entity that runs that, generates two-thirds of all their revenue from property management and land leasing. I tell my students they are a real estate company with a side business in transportation. So that's, that's one example of land value capture. And maybe the last thing I'd say that places could learn from Los Angeles. In California, over the course of the last couple of years, environmental justice has become the central organizing idea idea for policy action at the state level. So it's moved from saying we want to reduce emissions and clean the environment, and as an add-on, we will talk about environmental justice and how to be sure that traditionally marginalized communities are benefiting. Yeah. It's now at the center. Now the state legislature is taking the position that every environmental initiative has to first deliver environmental justice benefits and benefits to marginalized communities, uh, and that that is not a, a secondary point. And I think that's very exciting. I think that is yeah. an area where California is really taking a leadership position. 
Because you have a uh, long-standing kind of Democrat state government, basically, or we are a very blue state right now, and not necessarily long-standing. This is a state that was home to um, uh, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, right? And this is a state that had several Republican governors. uh, Although over the course of the last couple of decades, there's a couple of things that happened. Uh, The parties polarized quite a lot, and um, a more moderate wing of the Republican Party is not really that could be palatable in California has kind of withered away. And I I do think that led to a, we are a very blue state, very strong Democratic majority. By Um, the way, we are, for your listeners, we do think of ourselves as being the resistance. And uh, and I'll point out that even the governor and even cabinet level officials talk that way. We take it pretty seriously here. <laughs> it's it's been obvious uh, watching from afar, I suppose, a, a political events at the national level, basically here in the U.S. And a number of states have come out, you know, on the front foot, basically defending state rights and state citizens on a number of issues. So coming back to your point there, for example, about what it means to be an Angelino and migrant communities that live here. I mean, the state, from what I've seen on the news anyway, has come out in a very forthright manner uh, and is prepared to defend migrant communities that are here, basically, particularly under that DACA initiative and program. Yes, yes. I mean, there isn't unanimity within California, but there's a, I think, a much stronger thinking that we are a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. We see that as the future, and we do see things that are happening in Washington right now under the Trump administration as moving backwards. I, I think in many cases, trafficking, I would say it straight out, in elements of racism and sexism that are not acceptable. So I've always been a proud American. I've always been a cr- proud Californian. I see no conflict between the two. But should they conflict in policy terms right now, I think California is the place to be. If I can just quickly, because I know we're pressed for time, time. Um, I'm interested to hear about the planning program here at USC and your role in it in particular, but could you give us a, um, a bit of an idea of, I suppose, I mean, what is the philosophy of the planning school here, you know, and, and its approach to, to planning and, and what, what do you offer in terms of programs? We've spent, this is a very interesting question, that's why I paused, we spent a couple of years talking about our master's degree curriculum And out of that, we've developed two philosophical approaches. One is we really want to focus on planning as innovation, not as what you might think of as narrow applications of regulations. We think there's this old-fashioned view of planning of a person at the zoning counter. Yes. Um, Yeah. What we call statutory planning, that kind of the bureaucratic face of planning. We see planning as innovating, as experimenting, and that can be in the regulatory realm. The other thing that we're trying to do here at USC is to really stake a leadership position at the intersection of new spatial, visual, media approaches, particularly with attention to equity and social justice. We see that that there's a lot of new technology, that we have a pressing need to bring attention of social justice to these questions. I mean, one issue, smart cities are talked about a lot. People aren't really thinking through as much, what does that mean for equity? So we're trying to stake a leadership position in that area. And then additionally, some of the traditional areas, economic development, real estate, housing, transportation, we're very, very strong in in, in those areas. Again, it seems to be part of this whole kind of globalization and policy transfer of ideas and, and stuff so smart cities is a uh, is on the agenda within the federal government in australia and it seems to have a very kind of you know 
technical aspect to it. But your point there about kind of what is the social aspect, I mean, I think that it may be in there implicitly, but, it, you know, I don't think they've really wrapped their heads around it yet. So, and there will be, you know, again, coming back to our old friends, Riddle and Weber, you know, that, that where they highlight there's always winners and losers. But I suppose the question for big policymakers at the federal level and so forth is, is it the same winners all the time? Is it the same losers all the time? What's the split between winners and losers? Is it, you know, is it 80 percent, 20 percent or 50 50, you know, in terms of the sharing of the benefits of smart city innovations? We're really here at USC, we really see equity and social justice questions as fundamental to where planning needs to go in the future. And also, I would agree with what you're saying. The smart city idea is very wrapped up with technology. And I think if we let that go the way the technical people are inclined to take it, there will not be enough attention, distribution, equity, justice. And so we think that planning needs to be the, the field that brings that attention. Do you think that there will be serious kind of labor market implications of this? So, I mean, I'm going to come back around to transport in a way. So autonomous vehicles, for example. And we seem to think that's just in cars. But what about if we have autonomous trams, autonomous light rail, autonomous heavy real autonomous aeroplanes, jumbo jets. What happens to all the people basically who are involved in those jobs of essentially driving or flying? A couple of thoughts. Uh, first of all, I'm always a nervous flyer. So <laughs> I, I know the plane going over the Pacific Ocean might be on autopilot a lot anyway, yeah. but please don't tell me because that makes me even more nervous. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I think if I remember the statistic correctly, the most common job for males at a certain education level, and I forget what it is, maybe without a college degree, is driver, the most common job classification. Yeah. I think it's something like in the U.S., four to five million jobs could be at risk of uh, from automated vehicles. So there's potential for mass job dislocation and it doesn't get discussed nearly as much as we need to discuss it. Yeah, I mean, if we think about a capitalist project then, I mean, if those people all become, let's, let's look at this in a kind of scary scenario for a second, but if that number of people become unemployed, basically, some of them will do other things, presumably, but if you have fairly large numbers of people unemployed, that means drops in income, drops in expenditure, negative impacts on multiplier, you know, regional and local multiplier effects. I mean, are we thinking through, is anybody thinking through this kind of, I suppose, the, the really bad scenarios? Well, the, is anyone thinking it through? Yeah. Not nearly enough would be my answer. We, we really need a lot more thought on that. Part of it, Jane Jacobs, in her book, The Economy of Cities, the one that planners don't read, right? they always read Death and Life. I think The Economy of Cities is a wonderful book, and buried towards the end of it, she has this idea that I think is very valuable, which she articulates that in a stagnating economy, in her view, the elites can do fine. And it's the people who are not the economic elites who cannot do well in a stagnating economy. And I point that out because it's a real political and economic view of uh, how to think about city economies. I think we need thinking that is maybe not exactly that, but like that. It, the, the knowledge economy is clearly widening inequalities to levels that we haven't seen since the late 1800s. And I've begun to tell people, you know, Bismarck in, in Germany yeah. began kind of this social welfare project in some sense as a way to try to save capitalism. Yeah. And I think we may need some similar grand scale thinking because the economic system is 
creating inequalities that may not be tolerable and we may not want to tolerate. I don't know what the thinking is, but I think we really, we, we need some real innovators somewhere. I'm going to wrap it up there, Marlon. It's been fantastic to see you again. And Paul, I'm thrilled to be here. I will say I had a chance to visit Australia for the first time last summer. So any, any way there could be a little bit of my voice in Australia, I totally welcome that. Okay, so that was Planning La La Land with me, Paul McGinn from the University of Western Australia and Professor Marlon Burnett from the University of Southern California. Thank you for taking the time to listen into this episode of the Suburbanista podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at SuburbanistaPod. Listen out for the next episode, The Voice of Reason, when I will be chatting with Fiona Patton, leader of the Australian Sex Party. Until next time. Wonderful music. There's a language spoken in every part of the world.